Thanks for listening. Join us now for Perry and Shauna Replay from 89.3 Moody Radio. He's the man being inundated with Bible questions, and it's all our fault. (laughs) Jeremy Grinnell (laughs) is a Bible teacher, and he got his Ph.D. in systematic theology from Calvin, taught at Cornerstone for some time. Bible teacher now has a... Just a beautiful ministry and a great redemption story. Check that out at bellowingofcain.com, bellowingofcain.com. Shawnee? All right, our buddy Jim's got a question for you. It is this. If a true believer's sins, all past, present, and future sins, were paid for by the shedding of Jesus' blood at Calvary, then why does forgiveness appear to be conditional when Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive others, from Matthew 6.12 and John 1.9? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Will our unforgiveness of others and not confessing our sins disqualify us from eternal life? <laughs> okay. Well, to get to that final question, there's a there's almost a question before that that we have to you have to sort of set up. And because a lot of this is uh, gets mixed up in the difference between time and eternity. And we experience things temporally, sequentially, and God in eternity does not. So this you can see sort of the implication of this. When you think about forgiveness is forgiveness is not just an event that happens. When the scripture talks about like if you ask the question, when was I, when were my sins forgiven? The scripture actually gives multiple answers to that. I was forgiven in eternity past. Scripture is very clear. Like before creation began, God loved the church and loved uh, the, the chosen people and all that, and that was there. I was forgiven in the moment Christ died on the cross. That's when it was, uh, that's when the sins were actually paid for. The forgiveness was enabled. So you could legitimately mm-hmm. say, I was forgiven when Christ died. You can also say, I was forgiven, as the, as the uh, caller does, um, in the moment when I come to Christ. When I, in that first moment of confession and repentance, when I embrace Christ as Lord of my life and all like that, you could say all of my sins, past, present, future, were all placed under uh, what Christ did there. And then again, when I go out today and I screw up and then I get down on my knees and say, God, I screwed up. I'm sorry. I, I forgive me. I am also forgiven in that, in that moment, or I'm catching up with the forgiveness, or I'm ag- agreeing with the forgiveness that's, that, that's given. So you have this, you have that in play as well. So when God talks about forgiving us or not forgiving us, you, you gotta, you can't think of it like a transactional kind of thing. It's much more dynamic and much larger part of the bigger story. Mm-hmm. So when you come to something like the Sermon on the Mount, which gives, and I'll, I'll admit, it's troubling. If you do not forgive, your sins will not be forgiven. There's no exception clause. There's nothing. It's a really dramatic and ominous statement. There might be a bit of a rhetorical piece to this as well. Christ is talking, but I, it may be, but I actually think when you look at the Sermon on the Mount and other places, John may be a little different, but certainly the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing is describing what kingdom citizens look like. This is how the kingdoms works. This is the values of the kingdom. This is how you can recognize kingdom citizens because they live like this. Mm -hmm. So a very legitimate way of reading that passage is to say, look, if you're not willing to extend forgiveness when you've been forgiven so much, if you're not willing to sort of pass that forward, that's that that stance is like a, a black mark, like an evidence to the fact that you've never really you don't really understand kingdom citizenship. You've never really entered the kingdom. And a person who's not entered the kingdom, by definition, their sins are not forgiven. Mm. Like they do not they they are not redeemed. So you have here this character. What is the character of the redeemed person? They forgive. What is the character of an unredeemed person? 
well, they they resist forgiveness and sure. they clutch to every every wound and they they I call it petting the parrot, you know, on their shoulder. They just keep nursing the thing, and and so which kind of citizen, which kind of person are you? I think that's really what Jesus is getting at. I don't think this is a real statement like if you can't come to complete peace with whatever mm-hmm. wrongs were done to you, you go to hell. Right. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's describing the kind of character that kingdom citizens have. We forgive those wrongs that have been done to us because we have received forgiveness for the wrongs we've done. And if you're not willing to do that, boy, that's an evidence. You really need to look at your heart. Am I really part of this thing? Yeah. I mean, I, I can imagine somebody who's hearing you say that right now and, and something horrific has been done to them and they just really wrestle with being able to let that go. That's not the same thing as saying... I am God and I stand in judgment over you and I refuse mm-hmm. to have mercy on you. Well, and I, yes, and that's exactly right. And even when you use that talk of the person who's wrestling to forgive, that wrestling counts. Yeah. That wrestling counts. The attitude to be aware of is this wrong was done to me and on no condition ever will I forgive. I'm, I'm going to take this to my grave and I'm going to hate and I'm going to act on that hatred. That's a very different thing than a person who's had a wrong done to them, knows they need to forgive and but has to take the journey of forgiveness. God forgives, and I don't know what this means for God, but we already said God sort of forgives in these stages, right? Scripture talks about it in all these moments. We forgive the same way. You know, I forgive, and a week from now, I'm going to need to forgive again. And a week from after that, I'll forgive again. Sometimes for the same thing. For this, often, no, that's what I mean. Often for the same thing, because we forgive half-heart, unlike God, we forgive half-heartedly. We forgive what we know at the moment. And as the consequences of it become clearer, well, we may need to forgive more, right? So take a cue from God. You're an image bearer. If God can forgive in eternity past and in Christ and in my life and all these moments, well, there may be a metaphor for us time creatures. We need to... Start acting like kingdom citizens and forgiving as best we can in this moment and let that be the value from which we're going to work, even if we can't enact it perfectly. And even saying, Lord, I don't want to forgive. I do not want to forgive, but give me the willingness to forgive. Huge. That, that counts. No, Absolutely huge. From, from my own story, just real quick, is when I was in fifth grade is when I had the awareness. I made a, you know, I said in front of my friends, I, I believe in Jesus and the Holy Spirit just gave me the assurance that I belong to, to the Lord. Mm. And at that time I was justified. I was set right with God. All my sins forgiven past, right. present and future. And most of my sins would be in the future. <laughs> it's just true. And it's so, true. you know, just my own personal <laughs> yeah. story is that Jesus has forgiven me so much. I just, it does, it does motivate me to forgive mm-hmm. because I've experienced that forgiveness. And then, the other one, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. The if, the condition. Mm-hmm. To me, when I come to act, to confess my sins, uh, it's something that a person who's secure in Christ does. Mm-hmm. It's it's saying, God, I come to you. I know I'm already forgiven, but I still, I fall short. And it's part of the... You're acknowledging, you're agreeing with God. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. agreeing with God. And it's part of, you know, saying, God, and I count myself dead to these sins too. Mm-hmm. And it's a part of my sanctification. So I am secure, even though I do confess my sins. Does that make sense? It does. And a person who practices forgiveness of that kind will intend, will will practice forgiveness on others. See, mm-hmm. I think that that is such a key word when you say the word practice, because I think so often when it comes to our relationship with the Lord and the ways of Jesus, we think of things as a, I don't know, we, we really, really generalize. We might even say, oh, Lord, forgive me of my sins. That's not the same thing as saying, 
Lord, I totally embellished on that story. I said things that aren't even true. I mean, I lied. I was deceptive. Forgive me for my lies. Forgive mm-hmm. me for being. So I think a part of repentance you can't repent if you're not if you're being general about it, right? Because you can't say well, you're not acknowledging what you did wrong, and, right? And we all know what it's like to hear a politician say, you know, I'm sorry if what I did hurt anyone. That's not an apology, mm-hmm. right? No, apology is to acknowledge the specific thing. I caused you this pain by this action, and I regret it, and I ask your forgiveness, and I won't do it again, and let's be reconciled, right? That's repentance. Yeah. Sarah has texted in her question, and she says, God's word says he has great plans for us. He doesn't want to harm us. He has a future for us. What do we say to those who have lost a young person that has not fulfilled a purpose? To those who struggle with illness, who have accidents and other difficulties, how can we come out of it trusting that God does want to give us hope and prosper us. This is kind of the problem of pain. It, it very sense. much, yeah. very much is. And, and C.S. Lewis spilled many words in the book by that title on this question. Um, the, the first of all, it's important to recognize because of the nature of the question that you're, the answer that I would give or anyone should give matters. The context matters. Mm-hmm. If you're sitting with the bereaved parent in the moment of that, that is not the moment to start uh, logic chopping your systematic theology. Mm -hmm. Um, The the pastoral concern in such moments is very different. And I sense that in the question. So I want to make sure we've said that. But setting that aside, if we want to try to bring sort of bare reason to to bear on a question like this and try to actually wrestle with it dispassionately, and there's times to do that as well, um, we have to remember things like this, that God's plans for us and the world are not incompatible with suffering. Ask Jesus, mm. who was at the center of the Father's will and still went to the cross. Right. Right. So you have to keep that in mind. But this is where good, where our good Christian view of the world, where good Christian theology begins, we have to kind of go back to it and remember it, that where does the source of this, all this brokenness, whether it's the, the premature death of, of a loved one or the, the horrible diagnosis and things like that, the Christian view, the Christian answer to these things is not that God is walking around throwing diseases at people and causing the, it's rooted in the event of the fall. God made a world in which such things didn't mm-hmm. exist. That was God's design and intent, that humans should live with richness and a wholeness of life and that these things wouldn't be the case. And human rebellion is what introduced them into the world. So the conversation you begin to have then, and the scriptural writers are consistent with this, even when at times they're not very organized in their discussion, is they never lay the, the uh, responsibility for such things at God's feet. What they lay at God's feet is what God does in them despite mm-hmm. the good that God does out of them. And Christ, again, is the example. The, the, the cross of Christ was the execution of an, an innocent man. It was an evil in every sense of the word. And yet look what God does through it. Peter talks about this in Peter chapter 1, these, these diverse and variegated trials that we go through. They prove our faith. God uses them to turn us into little Christs, to transform us. And so the faithfulness of God, the love of God, the promises of God are found not in God sort of unwinding the consequences of the fall at every moment in our lives, 
but rather that God is faith. No, God does that sometimes, but rather that God is faithful to take that which the devil, the enemy, the fall, the world intends for our evil and our overthrow and instead uses it for good. God takes the chaos that we inflict upon ourselves and others and often uses it to then transform us and others. Suffering is also a means to grace and growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I think, you know, we can take the the painful, the horrific things that we've gone through in our life. We can shake our fist at God and say, why would you put me through this? Or we can see that whether it's a, the results of choices that we've made in our own life or not at all, and just things being inflicted upon us, hardships that we've endured that, you know, robbed us of our innocence or whatever the case may be. And we can see that even in the midst of that, God has been faithful to be with us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you're with me. You're with me. And I don't deserve that. That's right. And and just to encourage, you know, uh, every you know, if you're listening and you're, you're working through something like this right now, you say we can shake our 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 fist in the face of God or, and yes, the or is where we ought to move eventually. But if you read the Psalms and the Mm -hmm. prophets, you realize that God is, God's actually okay with the fist shaking too. God understands what it means for us to suffer and God desires us above all things to be honest. And so if that's where you're sitting, you know, you're on the suffering square and you're angry, you're bitter, you're defeated, tell God, God can do things with bitterness, with anger, with regret, with shame, God can do things with them if we will just be honest with the fact that that's where we are. The one sacrifice that God does not honor is the insincere, hypocritical one. You know, David tells us, a broken and contrite heart is my offering, and you don't despise that. So whatever you're going through, be honest with God about it. And I think it's great to keep in mind the big story that God's writing. That's right. That's redemption. Don't look at the moment so much and... You know, a young person's life is cut off. It looks like there's no chance that Jeremiah twenty nine eleven can be fulfilled. But we are living in light of a story when all the sad things will come untrue. Here's a question that came from the classroom. We have a teacher that texted in a question for you, and it's simply this. Uh, if God loves everyone in the world, does he love Satan too? Ah, good call. Good call. Well, I mean, the thing that carries all the freight in that is the word love. And we use the word love in all kinds of different ways. If I say I love my wife and I love my dog and I love donuts, those are not all exactly the same uses of the word. Sure. So at least when you're talking about God, you've got at least two ways that you need to, in your mind, think about. You have God the creator and God the redeemer. And God is the creator of you know, everything, uh, including Satan. Satan is one of God's creatures. That's where we find, you know, all the comfort in the fact that Satan works and operates at God's behest in the world. And in that regard, um, God loves the work of the divine hands. So as the creator, you would want to say yes. As the redeemer, the God who restores broken things and desires to see righteousness and justice prevail— well, Satan probably d- doesn't. That would mm-hmm. that one you'd want to probably say no. All right, so you have to be. It's it's a bit of a nuanced question. I mean, think about it if, with your children. You love your children, yes. Do you also dislike your children sometimes? 
Yes, I mean when they when they do things like that, and so I think when God, inter, you know, when you think about God and Satan, what are God's sort of speak emotions about Satan? Sorrow, pity, mm-hmm. you know, if you have a, a child run a, run astray, and sorrow and pity over brokenness is a kind of love, um, indifference. If you don't care about anything, that's actually a form of hatred. Mm. If you just don't care, mm-hmm. and if there's one thing we know is that God cares very deeply for the works of the divine hands. So it's a yes-no question, um, or yes-no answer to the question, I think. Yeah, God is, well, the the, the word says God is love, not mm-hmm. that he just, right. not that he. It's not a thing God does, is it's, God is. There, right? there yeah. we go. It's yeah. Monday morning. Thank you very much for, for being here. So I think I hear you saying in one powerful, very real sense, God does love Satan, everyone who will perish. Is one of God's creatures, yes. Same. God will continue mm-hmm. to love and that's yeah. that's hard to wrap our minds around. I think that the the part of that answering that question that is helpful for me is when I think I'm bad, God can't love me. Mm-hmm. If God loves Satan, yeah, as his cre as his creature, as his creature, as his created, mm-hmm. then certainly he can he can love me. Absolutely. We've got a question from Officer Steve. Mm. He's a good friend of ours, and it has to do with, can God hate? Mm. And so Malachi chapter 1, God says to Israel, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, Edom, the descendants of Esau, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the cities and the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. So that's where it is first mentioned mm-hmm. in Malachi 1. And then Paul uses it yep. in Romans, Romans chapter 9, nine when yeah, he's talking right. about election you know, who God chooses and who God doesn't choose. Esau, I have loved. No, Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. So um, the question yep. is, what's up what's with that? What's going on? Yeah, yeah. well, I, everything we said a few minutes ago about uh, does God love Satan applies like here as well. Uh, Esau is a creature of God. And in that sense, the creator loves the work of the divine hand. So in that sense, God does love Esau. What's going on here is seems to be a kind of rhetorical argument. It's really being overstated. This is one of the this is one of those parts in the Bible that you got to be careful about like taking quote literally because it's very clear that God does love Esau in the way God loves all people, the mm-hmm. creator, you know, the fatherhood of God if you will, that sort of thing. But in the context of these arguments, both of the, both of them, both in Romans 9 and in Malachi, these are conversations about the covenant. The, who is the covenant person? Which line from Abraham is the covenant going to follow down through? And it's it's uh, Jacob, not Esau. So in that relation, Jacob is the chosen. That's the line through which the covenant's going to go. That's and that's an act of free love on God's part to choose. Because could could God have chosen Esau? Esau was the oldest, right? Yes, God could have, but God, for reasons known only to God, uh, uh, Jacob is the 
promised line, the line through which the Messiah will come, the promised, uh, all of that, the chosen people, and Esau not. So it is as if God loves the one and hates the other. You hear, it's, it's a rhetorical argument. And mm-hmm. Paul is doing almost the same thing in Romans 9 because he's actually rehearsing there the you know God's choice to choose Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. And at every point, God is acting in history. And so that language of love and hatred in this context seems to be more rhetorical than than literal or metaphysical. What do you mean by that, rhetorical? Rhetorical means it's making an argument. You know how politicians or public speakers, uh, they they will make an argument and they will use language that's bigger and broader than what is actually, you know, and and they do it all the time. We, you all, rich people think this or Hispanic folks think that. And, you know, we kind of lump things together and make statements that are much larger than and and, and much simpler than reality really mm-hmm. is for the sake of making the argument. And the biblical author, Malachi first, and then Paul mirroring, it seems to be doing some, some of the same thing. They're not saying God hates Jacob um, in the same way I hate okra, right? It's not, it's not a literal statement about God just detests everything. I mean, God's Esau's creator. There is creature... Creator love there. But when it comes to the covenant, Jacob is the one who is chosen. Esau is the one who's rejected. And what other, you know, could you use stronger language if you were making your case, making an argument in a court of law than to say, well, one is loved and one is hated. You see, it's an, it's an argument almost for emotional effect, not really describing, you know, God's true feelings, if you will. Yeah, I think what helps me with this is that the covenant was about God choosing Israel and through Israel to bless the world. That's right. It wasn't that God chose Jacob because he was so special. Mm -hmm. It was because God loved Jacob and God so loved the world. Mm -hmm. And through, you know, Jacob's line would come the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when God chose Jacob to bring blessing to the world, he was actually, he actually had his heart toward Esau. Esau this would be a beneficiary. Yeah. The same, it would yeah, be the yeah. same. The redeemer of Israel is the, ultimately the redeemer of Edom as well. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And also, you know, with Esau, we see Esau being like the prodigal son's father when Jacob comes home. Yep. He embraces him. He forgives him. I think Esau was, I think Esau was a true God-fearer, a follower of Yahweh by the end. His descendants rejected Yahweh. And no. went into wickedness. No, I think you can make a strong case for that, yeah. which again would push us back to say what's going on in this love-hate language in this particular case is a, is a rhetorical argument, is a, an, an emotional argument, an argument meant to create an emotion in the reader, to contrast not God's true love or uh, for a person, but in relation to the covenant, which one of these was embraced and which one of these was rejected as the covenant error. Mm-hmm. And that's really all that seems to be going on there. Yeah, you made the comments, Perry, about um, you know Jacob being uh, Jacob being good, or you know God didn't select him in his line because he was so good. You look at Jacob's life; there's some stuff in there that's oh, not yeah. so good. He's a he bit was of a, a wretched, deceiver, right? You know well, what I mean? He pulled some nasty tricks. It's pure grace. Yeah. Right? God's God's selection of anyone, anytime to do or be anything is pure grace. None there of us deserve go. any of it. Yeah, and I think that in Romans nine, Paul is is coming against this. Jewish ethnic pride, like we're the chosen people. We are special. You chose us because we're so great. And I think Paul is saying, yeah. no, it's grace. It's not about mm-hmm. it's grace. It's no. not about how great you are. You know, because over time they accumulated this idea that 
we are really, we're, we're superior. We're the superior race. Well, it's the confusion between being chosen, which they were, and being deserving of being chosen, right. Right. which none of us are. Right. All right, so I've got another question for you. Sure. And this is from Carrie. And Carrie asks, who wrote the book of Genesis? Well, we know that we, we think that Moses wrote the book of Genesis. Okay. It's generally understood that he has. That is the traditional answer. Yeah, yeah the traditional answer. How did he know what to write because he wasn't there, I right. think would be it. Well, again, the book of Genesis, you, you put your finger on it, the book of Genesis itself does not attest an author. So uh, you have the traditional Jewish response is that Moses wrote the, the, the five books of the Pentateuch, um, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So um, if, if that traditional response is not correct, and there are, you know, Old Testament scholars will tell you there are marks throughout the Pentateuch which do seem to indicate that there was some editing going on over time, then, then the question becomes moot because you have a collect, like, uh, like Solomon collecting Proverbs. You know, there's some sort of editorial work pulling it all together. But if the traditional response, Moses wrote it, is correct, well, then your options, your, your most likely option is um, something to the effect that the Spirit reveals, the Holy Spirit reveals it to him. You know, we know that the Spirit is there present in the composition of Scripture. Uh, Peter speaks of this. Jude speaks of this. It's, it's recorded m- several times in the New Testament that the those who are writing scripture are working under the inspiratus, the the breathe the spirit's breath as they compose the scriptures. So they're they are in some sense being guided or given this material um, or made aware of things. And so that would be it would be somewhere in that ballpark. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit is revealing it. Now if you want to talk about dream or or um through the legends of the of the culture in which Moses was raised, or whether it's through a direct audible voice, here, write this down, like the Spirit says to John in Revelation, write this down. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, those kinds of things we don't know. Um, but that those are kind of your options. Yeah, so no one was there at the beginning. By definition, yes. No human being was mm-hmm. there. So yes. there, there is most definitely revelation mm-hmm. taking place, a vision, a dream, mm-hmm. some kind of... You know, somewhere along the line, yeah, some that has to that information of origins, and that's true because every every culture in the world has a creation story, and so by definition, nobody was there at creation. Mm-hmm. So if if Moses is giving us the if if Genesis is giving us here is here is God's version of events, here mm-hmm. is what God wants us to know about how the world comes into being, then yeah, you have to say that God made that known to Moses or whoever did this in. Uh, you know, however they got there. But again, there's mystery too. But one of the things that we certainly know about Moses's life was that he was intimate with the Lord. Very much so. That he spent time with the Lord, that the glory of the Lord was reflected. Rested right on his on his face, yes. Yeah, and so clearly, you know, there was, uh, he nurtured that relationship mm-hmm. and there was opportunity for him to, he did, re- we know he received things. I mean, straight yes. up like the Ten Commandments, right? We know he very specifically received instructions from the Lord. Face to face. From the Lord and heard mm-hmm. his voice and then. Right. So this would be very, this. it would be very fitting and appropriate and by no means scandalous sure. if this were part of the material that Moses received. I think of Hebrews 1. It says, in the past, God, God revealed himself to our ancestors through the prophets mm-hmm. 
at many times yeah. and in various For ways. Various ways. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see that, that there is not one answer to how the Bible was composed. Sometimes it's a voice, like with John, write down what you see. Sometimes it's it's God working more mysteriously in the background, like as Solomon collecting the wisdom from the nations and putting it together into this book. Well, the spirits at work there in some sense saying, you know, this one, not that one. I, I don't know how that works. But uh, for Moses, it could be a dream. You know, uh, Joseph gets information from the Pharaoh directly through dreams. So, uh, you know, God is at work in all kinds of ways, and the very production and authoring of Scripture is an example of how God mm-hmm. works in the world. God, yeah. God doesn't like to do the same thing over and over again. That's and then the Adam and Eve story. You know, same. They would have yep. they would have passed that story on, which is why again the the legends of the culture and the conversations around could also be part of this because. You know, humans tell stories to their children. Yeah, you said God doesn't like to do the same thing over and over again, and yet He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The two both isn't exist. that interesting. And and we face, and God has built a world that works that way. You know, every morning, every spring, you know, it's the same spring that's happened ten thousand times, and yet it feels brand new. Thanks for listening to Barry and Shauna Replay. To learn more, text us at 800-968-8930. That's 800-968-8930.